You're listening to the State of Women Radio Network, the first and only global radio network focused exclusively on women and girls with your host, Michelle Jaffe. Welcome to Women Investing in Women and Girls. I am your host, Michelle Jaffe, and we are joined here today by Anu Bardwaj of Women Investing in Women, as well as our guest today, Princess Rima Bint Bandar Al Saud from Saudi Arabia, and her daughter, Sara, which we're very glad is able to join us today as well. Um, and Princess Rima's work for female empowerment and equality is making significant progress beyond borders, so we are absolutely flattered to have her on our program as well. So how are you doing today, Princess Rima? We're doing great. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for giving us a chance to talk to you guys. Oh, it's absolutely our honor. And we'd love to start off the conversation by asking you a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, do I need to go into the gory details of my age, or can we skip that part? <laughs> we can skip that part if you'd like. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I'm 39 years old, uh, mother of two, um, um, I don't know, I guess divorced, a uh, businesswoman, um, and I guess that's, that's the short answer. That's totally all right, because we have lots of questions to get into about your background and all the work that you're okay. doing. It's absolutely incredible. Um, and just to start off again, uh, you do come from a very special family, and I'd love to know from you what it was like to grow up as a daughter of a diplomat. Well, my father started his career as a fighter pilot, so we were always moving around, and I guess um, any children of army families would know what that feels like, where every few months you're somewhere different, or every few years. So we, um, while I was born in Saudi, I moved to the States when I was about five years old. Um, we were in Alabama, and then we eventually made our way to Washington, D.C., and that's when my father joined the embassy, and we were there for about 23 years. So my full education was in the United States, um, in between Virginia and Washington, D.C. area. And what was really interesting about being in D.C. is as much as it was really being in the United States of America, it was such an international community, um, not only with the diplomatic corps, but also with everyone in the U.S. government changing every few years. We got to know a lot of really interesting people, and it was a lot of fun growing up there. Uh, absolutely. I think that Washington, D.C., like you said, is a very interesting place to be just because it is the center of um, so much political development and, and development that spans across America and beyond, too. So um, that's very interesting. And I'd also like to know what kind of issues were you made aware of from a young age because of the family that you came from and because of the amount of exposure that you had um, in both America and beyond? So what was really interesting is growing up there, we got to see both sides of the coin. Obviously, my father being ambassador, we were representing our country to a foreign country. So whenever political issues came up or social issues came up that perhaps from a Western point of view didn't quite gel, we got to see it from our country's point of view because that's what we were representing. But we also got to hear what everybody else kind of thought about what was going on. And I think that's really what helped me come home and try to kind of explain to people back home, how does everyone else see you when you make these decisions and how do they take it? And it's not that you really need to keep um, everybody else in mind every time you try to do something, but it's, it's just always helpful to see how what you do projects to other people. And what kind of responsibilities did you feel like you had as somebody who came from an international background coming to America? 
Well, we were basically raised as mini ambassadors. Uh, there, there's really no two ways about it because that was the conversation we always had at home and it was always the questions that we brought back to my parents. So even from a young age, you're kind of burdened with this responsibility where your actions represent more than you as the individual. And that's really a heavy load to bear when you're 13 years old and all you want to do is go to the mall or to a concert. And so we were always very aware of what we did and how what we did or what we did as much as it did on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I'm trying to even help my children with now that I'm back home, that because of the family you come from, what you do has impact larger than yourself. So if you have that burden, you can see it as a burden or you could see it as a privilege. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is use that access to be positive and make a positive impact. You're totally correct. I think that even now, um, even if you don't come from a family that isn't that is international, I think that we all have this kind of um, responsibility that we're growing into is trying to make sure that we are aware of the countries around us mm -hmm. and the differences in people and just kind of having that responsibility on lots of people now more than ever. So I think that's a very valid point. Um, and you also have had um, quite an experience in different kinds of industries, working in different industries. Um, and when you were in America, you actually started a few businesses, if you'd like to talk about those a little bit. Right. So while I was in the States, uh, I would come back home and visit quite often. And um, two of my cousins asked me to join them in starting a ladies' day spa. And what made our location a little bit different than everybody else's is we were trying to look at a holistic environment that wasn't just about fitness or about beauty, but it was about a total lifestyle. So we really were one of the first locations, and I think until today, one of the only locations for women that had an outdoor presence. And while that doesn't sound significant to perhaps to anyone else other than, you know, in the Middle East, we wear the abaya. You've all seen it. It's the cloak that you wear, and we cover our hair when we go out in public. So to be able to walk into an environment where you can take that off and relax and sit outside and, and spend time with friends or, or coworkers or whoever it may be or meet new people, outside by a swimming pool in a coffee shop is a very liberating experience and we really wanted to make sure that we offered that ability to mingle comfortably for our clients and in the spa i mean you could do anything from zumba and and yoga and tai chi classes all the way through to um hair treatments and, and beauty treatments so i'd love to know what the name of this company is and the origin of the name as well so the name of the spa is Yibreen, which is Y-I-B-R-E-E-N. And it, it's the name of the oldest oasis in Saudi Arabia. And uh, that was our goal, really, to be a place that a woman could go and be replenished. And emotionally, physically, so you could exercise, you could chit-chat, you could gather. It really became like, a, I guess, a watering hole for the ladies. It's just somewhere to go and be refreshed and... It sounds like a great place to be, and I can just imagine that it's probably, um, like you said, a, a perfect place for these women to feel liberated um, and to work well and all of those great things. So that's very special. And you have another company called um, Baraboo, correct? I do, yes. So um, Baraboo is actually my daughter's nickname, um, and it comes from Sarah Baraboo, which is what I used to call her when she was a kid. And it's, um, it's a handbag and travel accessories collection for women. And the goal with that was, as I got older and began really 
joining into the professional world a lot more. I'm traveling a lot. I'm coming, I'm going. I've got meetings. In the morning, I'm the mom. In the afternoon, I'm in the office. In the evenings, I'm socializing. Almost every other week, I'm on an airplane. And any woman that leads that kind of a hectic lifestyle realizes you're always forgetting something. Your bag's too heavy or there's not enough room for it. And I'm a little bit OCD and I like things organized and I like them where I, they need to be. And I wanted to create a collection for women that were equally as busy and wanted that kind of organization and sanity to their lives. So we've created almost a toolkit for that neo-nomad, the traveling woman. And travel, by the way, isn't necessarily from one airport to the other. It really is from your home to wherever it is you're going. It's point A to point B. Awesome. Um, and with the little bit of time that we do have left, I'd love to know from you your experiences as an entrepreneur. So um, specifically with Barabu, um, we launched twice and we failed twice. And we're on our third iteration of, of this project. And what that taught me is if you believe in something, keep going, dust yourself off, pick it up, but learn from your experiences and what was it that worked and what wasn't. Uh, and try to figure out the formula. And sometimes, honestly, it's about either tweaking the, the concept, it's about finding the right team, and managing your finances. And each time that we kind of dropped the ball and had to pick up again, it was one of those elements. And right now what we've got is a really outstanding team that's extremely respectful of each other, but really we're all focused on the mission and the vision. And we are engaging with each other not only as professionals but as equals and if you cannot engage with a team of people that are really functioning as equals you're really not going to succeed and it doesn't matter how high a position or how low a position there's got to be some sort of um, cohesion in the way that you're communicating with each other otherwise you're really not going to go anywhere Great. And you know, Princess Rima, we will get back to more of the involvements that you are um, working on right now. But for right now, we are going to take a break. We want to hear from all of our listeners out there. Go to facebook.com slash womeninvesting or on Twitter. You can use the hashtag invest in women, hashtag girls invest and hashtag women invest. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. You're listening to the State of Women Radio Network, the first and only global radio network focused exclusively on women and girls. Welcome back to Women Investing in Women and Girls. I'm your host, Michelle Jaffe, and we are going to continue our conversation with Anu Bardwaj of Women Investing in Women. Our guest today, Princess Rima Bint Bandar Al Saud, and her daughter, Sara. Um, and to start off this part of the conversation, I'd love to ask this question to Sara, actually. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, Sara, to tell us a little, just a little bit about yourself, um, your age, and what you um, think about living in Saudi Arabia. Um. I'm 16 years old, and I've been living here for about nine years. And obviously before I used to live in Washington, but there's obviously a big difference between here and D.C. But seeing as I've had both of the sides of the story, I guess, it's more easy for me to adapt to the life here because I was, I was growing up with both of it. I come back here a lot with my family. So I don't really see that there's that much of a difference because I still have my life with my friends and my life with my family, and I think that's all that really matters. 
Right. Um, you know, my mom actually had an international background and in living in both America and abroad. Um, and she said something similar that it was actually very interesting to get used to another culture and how she was able to integrate both her life from America and her life abroad. Um, and it just made things a lot more interesting to have those different perspectives in her life. So I can definitely understand where you're coming from. Um, and I'd also like to know from you what you think of your mom's work in helping bring about women empowerment um, and female, female equality. And we'll get to those with her um, in a little bit. But I'd love to know your take on her work. Well, she does bring me along to a lot of the meetings and I like to, I really like to be there because I like to see what she is doing and sort of get on a, a hands-on experience within the whole situation and I really think it's a great thing that she is doing with everything. The fact that she as a woman in this country gets to do what she's doing I find amazing and it's great that she lets me be a part of everything that she is doing. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sara. I think what you said is very valid in the fact that um, we get to experience these things from our parents and um, from adults that are working to bring about change and to be involved with that is very special. And I have um, no doubt that you'll be able to carry that torch for her when you grow up as well. So um, thank you so much. Um, and I, now I'd like to shift the conversation to your mom, <laughs> uh, Princess Juma, with your uh, work with breast cancer awareness and the actually the, the Zara Breast Cancer Association that you were helping to find, if you would like to talk a little bit about that. So Zahra was started, um, honestly, by some amazing ladies. I joined at the very final stages. Um, there, as a group of professional women in the medical field, they were going from college campus to high school to community-centered dinners and really preaching about self-early uh, detection, being focused on your own health and personal empowerment. And I think that's why I really related to these ladies. And what we're trying to do is educate our nation on the power of early detection. We've managed to reach out not only in the cities where, honestly, if you take the three major cities, a lot of the ladies are already aware. And it's a matter of getting them into the habit of, you know, the monthly self-exams and then going in for the annual mammogram, obviously depending on their age. But the work that's been the most compelling for us is reaching out to the women in the villages. And we face a lot of cultural issues here where women do not talk about their body parts. And in fact, even encouraging them to touch a body part is actually quite an awkward conversation for us to have, particularly if you look at us as the big city ladies coming out to these rural villages. So when we go out to the villages, we really begin our conversation initially on general health and health awareness. And we come back sometimes two, three times later to engage in the conversation about breast cancer. The only problem we have is when you really consider breast cancer as a fast-moving disease with certain ladies, if we're coming back sometimes six to eight months, sometimes a year later, and we're now talking to a lady who's at second or third stage, we know we've already spoken to her a year before, and that can get a little disheartening just to try to keep this conversation going because we're trying to tell them that with early detection, you can catch this disease, the treatment of it is so much simpler, and the recovery is phenomenal, and you absolutely do not need to die. But when we're coming in there and catching this at stage two, three, and four, it's really a different proposition because the reality they're seeing doesn't match the words that we're telling them. So what we've been trying to do is reach out and almost make this such a mainstream conversation that it is no longer awkward talking about the breast or saying the word breast and going out there and 
and encouraging women to really take their own health into their own hands. One of our first initiatives that we did to try to just shout out to the country was about 10 years ago, uh, five years ago, when we did um, the Guinness World Record, where we tried to gather as many women in a stadium and get them, you know, messaging out. And this was pre-Instagram and it was um, pre-Blackberry messaging frenzy. So we got the word out through Facebook and through um, text messaging, asking these women to participate in our campaign. And this year, in fact, in October, we're relaunching the same campaign, but we're calling it 10KSA. And you can find us online. It's, it's join10ksa.com. And we'd like to gather 10,000 women together in uh, the sports stadium to form the largest human awareness ribbon, but we're upping the game a bit. And what we've done is contacted every single organization in the kingdom that deals with emotional, mental, medical, physical, and environmental health. And we're asking them to come in and set up almost like a circle of awareness in the concourse of the stadium so that all of the women that are coming in can understand that they need really to engage with their total health because breast cancer is not an isolated disease. There are many ways that we can support you in this and there's many factors that can either push it forward or help you be stronger. And we want to make sure that we're telling the message of total health for a woman, even though the specific campaign 10KSA is awareness for breast cancer. And so that's what we're working on for October. And it, it really is an exciting campaign. What's the date of this? When is it going to happen? October 24th. Oh, wow. It's coming. Yeah, this year. It's very exciting. Um, I'd also like to know, with this campaign, and we talk about the necessity for communication to spread awareness and for people to understand uh, the causes of cancer and things that they can do to prevent it, like you said. Um, but how are you getting men involved in this campaign as well? So the men are being involved. We, we really are quite fortunate here that... Um, in the major cities, again, I really have to specify there's a difference between the awareness levels and, and the community awareness in the major cities versus the rural areas. We have had an amazing response from the men in our community supporting us, whether it's from the medical community, government organizations, or just your average Joe on the street. Um, we really, really have had a great feedback from them. But for the specific campaign in October, we're launching a social media campaign where we've got a lot of local ambassadors for uh, this campaign, our local comedians, our athletes, uh, actors and musicians. And what we're trying to do is get these high profile men to come out and say, I need you, the women of our nation, to take care of yourselves because we are one nation. And we've wow. really had a phenomenal response with that campaign, an absolutely phenomenal response. And no one could, I mean, what we hear in the West, we never hear stories like this saying, you know, this sort of movement, this sort of awareness building a campaign is happening in Saudi Arabia like you, we just never hear stories like this so this is amazing and we're actually building a global ribbon platform online that's going to launch um, in March where we're asking everyone in the world to come and click on and support us and see what we can do and I'm really hoping that the world can see a different side of Saudi women and I'd like to show them that we can be proactive that we can go out and we can really assert ourselves in a positive way for ourselves. And where can they learn more about this, our listeners? Um, you'll be able to see it. Um, it's www.join10ksa.com. Perfect. We encourage all of our listeners to go out and to look that up and to learn more about the campaign and the work that you are doing. Um, and just a little bit time left in the section, but quickly I'd like to know about your experiences with Mount Everest and about um, your work with that. 
So um, Climbing Everest was a campaign, again, for breast cancer. And what we wanted to do, the tagline was, change the rhythm of your life. We are a nocturnal society here. Um, most people are up until 3, 4 in the morning. Wow. And it's not a healthy lifestyle. It is <laughs> a, quite a sedentary lifestyle. And what we wanted to encourage people to do change the rhythm of their life get up earlier get moving and we were doing campaigns all around the country of show us where you're walking where are you going and what are you doing so in parallel to that the idea also was when a woman is presented with the fact that she has breast cancer or any other cancer for that matter some people take it as this insurmountable challenge of how do I do this and where do I go from here? And it is as daunting as looking at someone saying, okay, tomorrow you climb Everest. And we were using that as a reference and I was like, you know what, let's do it. Let's climb Everest and let's actually try to showcase what we're doing in contrast to or in parallel to perhaps a breast cancer um, patient's journey. And when you decide to climb a mountain, you don't just walk up the mountain and figure out how to get yourself up there. There's planning needed, there's strategy, there's fitness, there's a whole campaign for yourself. And what we wanted to show ladies is when we decided to go up this mountain, we had the luxury of choosing the date, of getting ourselves prepared, of getting our kit together and climbing that mountain, and we knew exactly when we were coming back down. Unfortunately, a breast cancer patient does not have that luxury. So what we were trying to do is say, ladies, don't wait till someone diagnoses you with cancer. Get healthy, get fit. Prepare yourself and arm yourself for fitness and health in general because that is a positive state for yourself, emotionally, mentally, and physically. And God forbid, should you be diagnosed with breast cancer or any other disease, a fit body can actually handle the treatment a lot better than a body that is not fit and healthy. And we were trying to not limit fitness and health just to physical. It really is mental and emotional too. So we were getting our support network rallying us and encouraging us to climb that mountain. And that's the kind of support network a breast cancer patient needs. Awesome. And when you look at the symptoms um, of altitude sickness alongside um, patients who are going through chemotherapy and radiation, the anxiety, the stress, the lack of sleep, the shortness of breath, mm -hmm. the brittleness of hair and nails, there was a lot of similarities. So we were almost trying to simulate that experience so that we can say, I feel for you. And this is awesome. a very difficult experience and I'm going to get through it and I'm going to be there for you. Perfect. So we climbed our mountain and you supported us. So we'll be there to support you as you climb yours. Okay. Yours just happens to be cancer. Great. And we are going to end the conversation for this section. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, but we will get right back. Stay tuned. And now back to the State of Women Radio Network, the first and only global radio network focused exclusively on women and girls. Welcome back to Women Investing in Women and Girls. I'm your host, Michelle Jaffe, and once again, we are continuing our conversation with Anu Bardwaj of Women Investing in Women, our guest today, Princess Ruma Bint Bandar Al Saud from Saudi Arabia, as well as her daughter, Sara. Um, and Princess Rima, I'd love to talk about the position of women in the workforce now and the work that you've done for that cause in America and in Saudi Arabia. So if you'd like to talk about your work through those and how you came to get involved with um, working with women in the workplace. Okay. So I have been working as CEO of Alpha International, which has the license for Harvey Nichols in Saudi Arabia, which is a department store similar to a Barney's in the States for about the past six years. And when I first uh, joined, there was a severe lack of women in our company. And when we looked at the situation, it turned it was because there were actually specific laws 
disallowing women in very specific jobs that were public and involved mixing with men. So when we looked at them, we tried to look at where women were specifically not allowed to work and try to find the vacuum of where there was no mention of could work. And in the Middle East, we have a saying where silence is um, kind of a, a silent acceptance. So I figured if there was no no attached to a specific job description, that meant I could actually hire women for those jobs. And we found the two simplest locations that we could hire women within our store was as dressing room attendants and also as makeup artists. And when we did that, we really changed the whole rhythm of the store and our our profits completely increased, and I'll tell you why. When a woman in the Middle East comes into a store, she really does not want to interact with a man who's telling her what would look good on her. It's our comfort level and our communication styles, male and female, is very, very different. So having a woman intermediary for her and bringing her her clothes in the retail environment really made our clients a lot more comfortable. So they were more comfortable going into the dressing rooms, trying things on, handing clothes back and forth, knowing that they weren't going to be exposed in front of a man. So that was a really huge achievement for us. And the second thing with the makeup artists was these ladies also don't want men touching them and applying the makeup. And it's really a difficult proposition in a conservative community to have a man a man compliment a woman without it being misconstrued in our part of the world. So what we did is we approached every single uh, cosmetics brand that we had in the store and we said, we asked them if they would be willing to create private rooms where they would then train a makeup artist to work with their specific product line. But it was really important for me also that not only is it a private room, but that it is branded with the same quality as the actual brand itself. So our private Bobby Brown room looks like a Bobby Brown counter. The Clinique, the La Prairie, La Mer, the Guerlain, all of them, the Chanel, the Dior, it all looks like an extension of the brand experience. And from a sales and customer service point of view, that was extremely important for me. And to date, hands down, we're the number one cosmetics area um, for sales in the country. And I'm very, very proud of that. From there, um, we began to notice movements within the Ministry of Labor where they were bringing in um, business owners, asking them how to facilitate allowing women into the workplace. Mm -hmm. And their first target was retail, so obviously we jumped right on board. And what we've done since then is really just following the guidelines of the Ministry of Labor to the letter of the law and being able to do it in, an, in a way that is both respectful to our community and encouraging of our, our staff. But you have to realize the ladies that we were employing came in at the expense of men that had been working there for about 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. And that was a very, very difficult proposition, really bringing them in and letting these men know, not only do I need you to train these ladies, you're going to be training them, they're taking over your job. And because they are new to the job, and not just that, new to work in general, they will perform less, they have a higher... Um, um, I would say, turnaround because of the stress levels involved. And obviously our business did suffer on one hand, but it was an investment. And I chose to look at the losses we faced as an investment in these women because the next round, the third, fourth, and fifth round of ladies that we brought in and trained really are now the, the, the core staff that we have and are performing in a level that is outstanding. I'm, I'm very, very impressed with them, but it was definitely a difficult proposition letting these men go. 
So to go off of that point, there was actually a survey conducted that you helped take a part of that tried to see the amount of acceptance of female saleswomen in the retail industry jobs. Um, and the amount of acceptance was 42%. It was relatively low. Um, so I'd love to know why that number was so low and what factors came in to um, impact that. So when we initiated the research, it was with Glowwork, a women's employment agency that we had hired to help us source these ladies. And we found we were having a very difficult time sourcing them on our own. So we wanted a, a partnership. And in order to create the environment that was attractive to these ladies, obviously we wanted to investigate a bit further. And we found out that there were several obstacles to women coming into the workplace. Obviously, bar none, the major obstacle was transportation. And what we did to resolve that is actually offer our, our female staff a stipend so that they could cover the cost of their transportation. Wow. We recognized that that's above and beyond their salary and their benefits. And again, when we talk about the investment we're making in women, it is so important for me that women come to work that that was something that we were willing to add and you know to our body, you know our expenses because the value of that woman coming into the workplace is infinitely more than the stipend we were giving them to get them to come in. One of the other obstacles that they faced was public perception. And with public perception, when you consider the service industry is not an appealing industry for the women here because of the statement it makes about the family. Typically, because we are a patriarchal and male-centered society, it is the man's role and responsibility to take care of the woman. So if she's going out and working, a statement is that the males of her family cannot take care of her. So a lot of men were reluctant to let their girls go out and work, particularly in the service industry or in hospitality. So what our campaign that we launched for that was called You Are Our Pride, meaning we are proud of you for coming out here and working and we will support you allow you to have a career path and really educating these girls on what does it mean to have a career path versus having a job and we want them to have careers the third thing that um was a struggle for them was training and obviously they're extremely insecure being the first individual female out of their home coming into the workplace they have no role model no reference and no mentor so they have no idea what to expect when they come in the workplace and their major concern was who's going to train me is it to be an asset, going to be another woman? Am I going to be capable? Am I going to be able to understand what's going on? And so that was a lot of anxiety and pressure on babies, which is absolutely understandable. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is really tried to implement um, a staggered and staged um, training schedule for them, bearing in mind that, you know, the first three months, everybody's on probation. So how much as a company do you invest and how little do you invest? And in these ladies, but what we decided is go gung-ho, go full force, because even if they don't end up staying with us after the first three months, the fact that we would have ladies with a basic understanding of certain skills was very important to me, because it means that they would go out and be more competent and capable whether they had another job or not. And they're ambassadors for the concept of work. So whatever it is we could give them empowered to go out was really, really important for me. And that's really what segued into my transition for a project that I created now, which is service ex- it's a service excellence and readiness for work um, academy. Mm-hmm. Purely because when I first conceived of it, I thought, you know what, retail academy, I'm going to go out and teach ladies to be the best ladies that work in retail. And we did a survey canvassing every other industry saying, okay, these are the issues that we found with bringing the ladies into the workplace for retail 
what is it like in your industry? And we found the basic issues were exactly the same. So I decided to broaden the scope and rather than focus exclusively on retail, we wanted to go into really readiness for work, service excellence, and from there, take the ladies into verticals, which could be retail, NGO work, government work, or corporate work, and then allow them to really have a skill set that's transferable across the board. Perfect. And with that, we are going to take our next break. We will continue this conversation after that break. Um, and for our listeners out there, be sure to go to Facebook.com slash Women Investing or on Twitter of women, use the hashtag radio network, women, the first women and invest, only global radio network invest, focused we'll exclusively right on women and girls with your host, Michelle Jaffe. Welcome back to Women Investing in Women and Girls. I am your host, Michelle Jaffe, and we are continuing our discussion with Anu Bhatwaj of Women Investing in Women, as well as our guest today, Princess Rima Bint Bandar Al Saud, and her daughter, Sara. Um, and Princess Rima, I would love to know now the differences that you see between America and Saudi Arabia. Um, and you lived in both countries, and I'd love to know what you think both countries are doing well and what they still need to work on. Okay, well, you'd be surprised that it's very, very similar in my observations on both. The things that I think both countries are doing well is focused on their youth today. And I think that's really important. And I see that a lot in the U.S. and I've always seen it, even growing up there. The focus on community service and, and values and ethics and really being tied together is, is outstanding, whether it's from the little leagues and the sports or after-school activities. But there's a strong sense of community in the States that is overwhelming and is, is really wonderful to observe. And it's something that we're beginning to focus on here. 50% of our population is younger than 35. And if you want to take that even farther, the majority are younger than 20. So we have a lot of young kids out there, and there's a lot of initiatives here that are now mirroring a lot of the initiatives in, in the States for youth empowerment and youth education and kind of inspiring things for kids to do that just even my generation here just didn't do from the community service point of view. The thing that I think both um, places are dropping the ball is um, in protecting youth and issues of privacy and social media scare me out of my mind and I think it's because I'm a mother. I think there's a huge, huge hole and gap in educating our children about privacy issues and communication issues and what you post and who you present yourself to be today might not be what you want the world to think of you 10, 15, 20 years from now and that's not going to disappear. Bullying, trolling and, and this aggressive communication online, but also in media in general, we've really become, I think, across the board, over-sexualized, over-aggressive, and very, very blatant. And the civil kind of communication that you used to find 20 years ago, I don't think it exists anymore. And that scares me a little bit across the board. Mm -hmm. I truly believe in freedom of speech, and I truly believe that you have the right to your opinion. You've got to be respectful in the way you convey your message if you people to respect the message that you're trying to out, you've got to be able to get the fact that not everyone's going to agree with you. Mm-hmm. And I find that we've lost that a little bit, I think, globally. Being able to debate people and accept differences and realize that I'm not 
trying to change your mind. I'm just trying to let you know how I see the world and how it occurs to me, mm-hmm. which might be different to the way you see the world occurs to you. But it doesn't make either one of our experiences more or less bad. Right. No, I, I, I think that's a very valid point. I think that we've talked about the benefits of social media and how youth is able to convey their thoughts and opinions in different ways of communication. Um, but as we see, there are definitely some downsides of having that amount of freedom and being able to say and do whatever you want. Um, and that's that's caused a lot of problems in countries all over the world. So um, I think that's a very important thought to bring into the conversation. Um, to talk about the acceptance between entities, um, I'd love to bring that into the um, arena of America versus Saudi Arabia again and understanding the differences between maybe a little more broadly uh, westernized civilization and the Middle East Um, and if there are any misconceptions that you see that westerners have of the Middle East in countries like Saudi Arabia that you'd like that you'd like to address. Certainly so I think it would come really from the point of of evolution of communities and (coughs) philosophies of lifestyles If you look at the history of the United States and even Europe, it's a very old history. And the transition times in the past between mentalities and moments of conflict and moments of resolution, whether it's um, religious or cultural or or community um, tensions, in the past and perhaps specifically in the history of the United States, you had 200 years to really evolve mutate, grow, and develop into what you are today without the eyes of the world specifically watching you. Whereas today in Saudi, the way we've transitioned as a country over 80 years with 24-hour television, um, social media where everything is available immediately, sometimes in or out of context, I almost feel like the time that we're having to evolve and go through the good times and the bad times, the rough times and the positive, enlightening, phenomenal times is so short and it's under a very, very bright light. Mm-hmm. So it almost is like we're not having the time to catch our breath moment to moment to even understand what's happening in this specific moment to learn from it positively or negatively or to, to evolve, I would say. And I find that stressful. I would just say... No one's perfect, and nothing's ever going to be perfect, but sometimes you've got to accept the fact that people are on timelines, and you've got to, it's almost like a mother with her children, even though I feel I might know better from my child, I have to let that child experience certain things so they can learn from themselves firsthand. It really, it's good to things in context, but you've kind of got to go through the lesson yourself if you want to be able to learn from it. And I would just ask people to yet flag it when there's something that perhaps might not be acceptable to see. You don't want us to be doing things that are mm-hmm. horrific. But give us the time to, to deal with it internally because women driving, for example, it's going to happen. You'd have to be really living in, on Mars to not accept the fact that in this country, women are going to drive. Is it going to be today? Probably not. Next week? Maybe not. But it is happening, and it's going to happen not only within my lifetime, I think it's going to happen within the next year or two. But you cannot, for example, build a house without making sure that the foundation is stable. And for our culture, and specifically with women driving, 
there are so many privacy and social interaction issues that are vital that need to be there from a logistics point of view before the women are on the road. You need female police. You need first for emergency the women. You need mechanics that are women. You need better controls on the road. You need better training drivers. You need parking. There's a lot of logistics that go on to it to create a safe environment for mm-hmm. people on the road, whether it's male or female. And I, I'm, I don't feel safe today on the road and someone's driving me, let alone driving myself. But I want, and I want women to drive, specifically from the point of view of an employer. I need these ladies to come into work. I need to make sure they can get from point A to point B safely. And I want to be a part of what the solution is that will allow them to come to me safely and go home safely and live their lives day to day safely. And so the logistics and the structure of it is being built. Right, absolutely. I think that's, again, it's incredible that you're able to bring about that change and really change the future of the country and of these women's lives as well. We'd also like to know what advice you have for young women and girls out there. I would say you can choose to bang your head on the wall in any room that you're in, or you could look around you and see where's the window and where's the door. And I would opt with trying to open the door first, and if you can't, crack the window open and see what's out there. And there's always a simpler and easier solution for what you're looking for, and there's always a harder solution. It just depends on your worldview and how you choose to handle a situation. I always choose to find the positive the simplest and the most positive route to achieve what I'd like to do, and that's why I would advise girls, um, because aggression doesn't always get you. This is an anger definitely doesn't get you anywhere. And I would advise girls to think of who they are today and think who they want to be and where they'd like to be 10 years from now and work backwards. What would it take today to do to get you to where you want to be? And follow that route, but be flexible enough that you might change your mind. And that changing your mind doesn't mean your dream was more or less valid, or your new dream is more or less valid. It just means you've grown. And give yourself that space to grow. It's really important. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for being a part of our program, Princess Rima. Again, it was an absolute honor to hear your wisdom. And I'm sure that our listeners will absolutely take that to heart. Um, And we do want our listeners to let us know what you think about this conversation. Go to Facebook.com slash Women Investing or on Twitter use the hashtag Invest in Women, hashtag Women Invest or hashtag Girls Invest. Uh, Thank you again, Princess Rima, for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. Now, we'd like to encourage all of you to connect with us by going to Facebook.com slash Women Investing or feel free to leave your comments on Twitter and use the hashtag Women Invest, hashtag Girls Invest or hashtag We For She. Thank you all for listening, and you've been listening to Women Investing Thanks in Women and Girls. Women the show is produced by the State of Women Radio Network, Michelle the first Jaffe. radio network for Download women and girls. Our shows on I'm your host, Michelle Jaffe. Listen Until next on time. demand right here on the stateofwomen.com, the first and only global radio network focused exclusively on delivering the latest trends in investing, entrepreneurship, and global women's issues by and for women and girls.